Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Gavin Cosgrave here, your host, tuning in from Davis, California. Uh, today's conversation is with uh, Dr. T, as she's known, Tanya Nilsson, who I first heard about in India when I was with my project partner, Rachel Hahn, who is a civil engineer. Rachel had great things to say about Dr. T, and I got to have this conversation a couple weeks ago before all the pandemic madness hit. So Dr. T is a civil engineering lecturer at Santa Clara. She teaches structural and materials courses and develops hands-on interactive methods of engineering instruction. She does a lot around faculty development. Dr. T has a PhD from UC Davis, a master's from Stanford, and a bachelor's from Cal Poly. And she also advises the Engineers Without Borders Club on campus that does humanitarian projects across the globe. And you'll hear a little bit about that in the conversation. In this conversation, we discuss the social impact of civil engineers, what makes a great professor, the future of construction, engineers without borders, and Dr. T's impressive outdoor hobbies. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So here we go. Dr. T, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So maybe to start out, you were just sharing with me some of your interest in like faculty development and uh, teaching faculty. So how did you kind of get started with that and why is it so uh, appealing and interesting to you? Um, well, when I went back for a PhD, so I'm actually a licensed professional engineer and I've been working in industry, but I wasn't finding a path that really fit my passions. And I had an opportunity to teach um, back at my undergraduate alma mater at Cal Poly as an adjunct professor. And I did that for two quarters full time and loved it. So when I went back for a PhD, it was with the intent of teaching. And that's not necessarily very common, especially in the STEM fields. And I got a chance to do, get some training in college teaching and then went to a national teaching workshop where my world was rocked. And I just like, wow, this needs to get back to other faculty. For a lot of faculty, they think that if you get a PhD, you can teach, right? And when you go into a classroom and you just lecture, it's boring for you. It's boring for the students. When they're bored, they're sort of sucking all the energy out of you if you're trying to keep them upbeat. And it becomes not fun. And I found that by incorporating all these best practices in teaching, I actually have so much fun in the classroom and I want to actually help other faculty have that same joy. At the same time, the students actually learn more, enjoy more, get engaged more. And it's a a win-win. And it's always fun for me to have faculty come back and say, oh my gosh, I had more fun teaching. I enjoyed teaching and my students learned. And I really also, I'm here because I'm passionate about teaching students. Mm -hmm. So I want them to learn. Hmm. What types of shifts does maybe a teacher who's used to the traditional lecture and realizes like this isn't working, like what do they need to to learn to bring more joy and uh, learning into the classroom? I mean, I think one of the things is what a lot of faculty aren't aware of. And so they, they are afraid that maybe these things that are being suggested to them are trends mm-hmm. or, or whatnot, that there's actually decades of research about how people learn and what are best practices. And so that there's stuff that substantiates it. And I think that's really important, but that you don't have to completely flip what you're doing. You don't have to go crazy, even recognizing that you get about 10 minutes of to 15 minutes max of attention span in any normal adult 
not that students don't have good attention span. This is normal. That just breaking it up with a quick activity, just um, doing a think-pair-share, the easiest thing you can do, um, that that actually improves the learning and students become more engaged. And then you get that feedback, which is really nice. And the other thing, especially for young professors, um, often we feel like when I was young, uh, you had to go and put your professor hat on, that there had to be this big wall between you and the students or they wouldn't respect you. And that I love giving faculty the freedom to be themselves in the classroom and that actually building of interpersonal rapport is huge for student success as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did did you decide that that like industry wasn't the path for you and you wanted to pursue teaching instead? Um, I think for me, the big thing was, is I didn't feel like I was making a big impact. <laughs> um, later on, a friend told me, it's like, well, gosh, you designed my house for me and now I know it's safe for earthquakes or that bridge that you engineered. Now I have a way to get from A to B that I couldn't do for myself. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I guess I was making an impact, but I didn't see it directly. <laughs> and what do they call them? gregarious introverts. I like my quiet private time, but then I'm also a bit of a clown on the stage, an actress. And so I was looking for where I could use my personal skills and engineering and Mm. fell into teaching and just went, wow, this is it. And the other thing that was really key to me, I never in my entire undergraduate education had a female professor in my major. Mm-hmm. And was that civil engineering? I was actually architectural engineering okay. at Cal Poly, which is a pure structural engineering mm-hmm. degree. But I don't think there were any women in civil either. <laughs> I had one uh, from a class in mechanical engineering I had to take and one in electrical engineering that was a visiting professor. And that was it. Um, and so... When I was teaching, I didn't even realize the impact I was having until an older male returning student came and was thanking me for the effort he saw me putting in the class and then commenting and telling me about comments the female students were making about me being a role model. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked. I, it hadn't even crossed my mind. Um, I just remember going in like remembering the bad classes I had and saying I could do that differently. <laughs> and so that's been something that's made me feel like I have a responsibility, mm-hmm. right, to show other women or minorities in engineering that this is a path for them, even if they approach it from a very different mindset than the traditional engineer or engineering student. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like in all the, you know, the different types of engineering, just thinking about like Santa Clara, for example, like computer engineering and computer science are kind of like the the cool ones here in Silicon Valley, right? All the big tech companies hire them, right? So maybe because of that, students like think less of, you know, either mechanical or civil or some of the other more traditional types of engineering? I I think think here at Santa Clara, yes. We started, they started marketing the school about four years ago as the Jesuit University in the Silicon Valley. The Jesuit University in the Silicon Valley. And it's crazy because as soon as they started doing that, we saw a drop in all the other fields of engineering and computer engineering went through the roof and it was actually uncontrollable growth and it caused huge problems for all of us because they didn't have faculty to teach. We didn't have enough students. It was just nuts. Where in other parts of the country, civil might be the largest department. Um, Back in Villanova, they're more civil than computer. What cracks me up is that people think those are the only engineering jobs in the Valley, but excuse me, who built 
the Apple mothership, as I call it. You know, we have a civil engineering only career fair here at Santa Clara. We have more employers that come than we have students hmm. that attend. Wow. The demand is crazy and you need mechanical engineers for that. You need electrical. So, and we have jobs that let us be outside. Mm-hmm. That's way better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And so I guess in your private sector career, you, you didn't feel like you were making that impact that you were looking for. So you kind of went to teaching, like what, what sort of impact, maybe there's, you know, an 18 year old, they're like engineering sounds interesting, but they're, they're not really sure. Computer engineering is more like tangible. They're like, Oh, I use these products all the time. And civil engineering is kind of for, and like, why is civil engineering an impactful? Well, field? actually now, now that, you know, that I've reflected on it more and gained some wisdom, I realize that civil engineers save more lives than any other profession mm-hmm. in the world period. Doctors got nothing on civils. In fact, doctors couldn't even do what they're doing without biomedical engineers, FYI, but, (laughs) and mechanical and electrical. Um, But, you know, now that I realize when I design a building that does not fall down in an earthquake, which is not common in many parts of the world, but when you think about the Loma Prieta earthquake and we had deaths, but it was less than 70 where a similar size earthquake somewhere else in the world might have a thousand, you know, or hundreds, um, that, that then I have that impact, um, that goods and services and health services can get to people quickly because of the transportation systems. Um, when you think about the Haiti earthquake, the, the, the death toll there was, well, unacceptable. Let's just put it, it was horrible. But the number of deaths that occurred post-earthquake due to cholera hmm. outweighed, right, the earthquake deaths. Cholera doesn't occur in the United States because of civil engineers, hmm. right? We're one of the, you know, there, there's so many places in the world where you turn on the tap and you cannot drink that water. You have to brush your teeth with bottled water. You have to boil the water. And we mindlessly in the United States turn the tap on and let that precious, clean drinking water that's safe to drink just run down the tap. So, oh my gosh, civils make life so much easier for people. And as one student once said, civil engineers make inside possible. Hmm. So you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in in thinking about, you know, the next 20, 30, 50 years, like into the, the future with, you know, perhaps like new technologies or self-driving cars or more people moving to cities, right? All these kind of trends, like what... What role, A, do you think like civil engineers will play or how we're, how will our like cities or structures be different moving forward? Oh my gosh, there's there's so much packed into that question. I was just reading an article about the Hyperloop because Virgin mm-hmm. Technologies is also, it's not just Musk, Elon Musk and his team, but Virgin Technologies are also pushing and they have um, prototypes that they've run in three different countries. And they believe that actually they will change the urban migration because you can get so quickly from point A to B that actually they'll they'll expand the the suburban sprawl again and get people back out into the country. But um, both the UN and the National Academy of Engineers have put urbanization and the big urban migration as one of the grand challenges that's facing the future. And so a big problem with cities is what's called the um, heat island effect, that the rooftops and the blacktop and the roads raise temperatures. So green roofs, buildings with gardens on the side, all of these things that actually can bring temperatures down. And at the same time, if you're in an area with rain, if you've got a rooftop 
rooftop garden or wall top, top gardens, they can actually filter water and you can then collect that rainwater and that can be your toilet flushing water, right? That can be um, water and cooling systems or that sort of thing that doesn't need to be potable, that doesn't need to be drinkable. Um, I think that the people are really looking at how we build and the materials we build with because today the big environmental footprint of a building is actually during the life of the building. Mm -hmm. But in California, starting this year, 2020, every new home built has to be net zero. Mm -hmm. So it has to have solar panels. It has to have a way to generate its own electricity so that when you balance out its usage during an annual year, you come out at zero. So you might use electricity in the winter or at night, but not in the summertime and you offset that. You have to have electric heaters and electric stoves now. Well, by 2030, all commercial buildings have to be net zero. So if suddenly too, our buildings aren't using as much power during their lifespan, then suddenly really looking at the materials of our building. Um, 10 years ago, debris from construction made up at least 25% of all landfill materials, which is crazy. And so they've started recycling concrete. Um, in fact, Caltrans projects, you have to, if you're mm. tearing up existing concrete, has to be recycled. So there's so much happening around driving, self-driving cars and how we deal with that in traffic, um, with how we build, where we build, what we build that, yeah, I can't even imagine. And then sensors mm. on bridges and buildings mm. for helping to assess damage or structural capacity. So changing how we view the life of these structures and how well we build them. Um, yeah, hmm. it's exciting. Yeah, no, that is, that so. is cool. Is, are most of the, the key like innovations to getting to net zero buildings? Like, do, do we kind of know what to do? It's just a matter of, of doing it or are there new like things that need to be created or invented to get us to that more sustainable future? You know, it's interesting because the current model now I don't think is sustainable because you tie into a grid, you feed back to the grid during the day, um, but then you pull from the grid at night because we don't have good storage solutions for power. Um, and so if everybody's feeding in towards the day and so they're not, and, and they come out so quote unquote net zero, so they're paying less money, say to PG&E or another person provider, then, then that company is going to go under, mm-hmm. right? That's a problem. And so we need better storage solutions for power. And there are, what is it, Mallorca, the island off of Spain is a net zero island. Mm-hmm. They're getting all their power from wind because they have wind the majority of days. But what they do is they also have, um, I don't know how many reservoirs, but more than one reservoir where when they are generating power, any of the power they're not using in that moment, they're actually pumping the water uphill to an uphill reservoir. So on the rare calm day where there's no wind and they're not generating power, they then of course let the water run downhill and create and generate power. And so, you know, that's a natural storage solution. There are a lot of people working on really clever storage solutions for power so that because otherwise at nighttime where are we getting the power from pg e are we still burning coal are we burning natural gas like what are we doing mm-hmm. so that to me is the biggest for this net zero hmm. and then people being willing to conserve 
Mm-hmm. Your your answer there kind of made me think of water and just being in in California and you know driving through the Central Valley and kind of the farm areas, right? And it, there's there's lots of you know both like controversy and also it's just tough when we I guess were in a drought for so long, right? So kind of yeah. what what role do civil engineers play with? Um, in terms of like water or how do you think about that like situation in California? Um, we, civils play a huge role in that. And first off, not my area of expertise. Mm. So I'm coming at it from a more than normally informed <laughs> person. But um, even my undergraduate was pure structural. So I didn't take the normal environmental and water resource courses. But one um you know, civil engineers are part of like, how do we get water to the general public? Um, and so what are the best ways? How can we uh, conserve as much water as possible? But when we look at the California aqueduct, I mean, it's the longest aqueduct of its kind in the world. It uses 25% of all the power. You No, I think it's like 33% of all the power used in the state of California, oh but generates 25% of it. Okay. So it generates most of its, some of its power, but not all of it because they pump the water up hills okay. and then they let it run downhill. So they generate power every mm-hmm. time they go through a dam or go downhill, mm-hmm. but the highest water pumps in the world are on that pass, like wow. the most altitude, not highest elevation, but most altitude mm-hmm. gain. Um, but Some of the things we need to look at is, you know, yes, the water in the Central Valley is critical. It's our breadbasket, right, of fruits and vegetables, but we do spraying and we do it in the afternoon and there's the sprinklers that are out there. Like, how do we as a state um, support those farmers and get them funding to get into soaker systems to use sensors? When do I need to water? There's work with drones, with Chris Kitt's robotics lab of using drones to actually be able to sense do areas need watered. Mm-hmm. out in fields but how do we use sensors and how do we use soaker systems and that so that we don't get so much evaporation of the water right and that's a real problem and then there's the recharging of water tables so a big thing that's a big push with an environmental and water resource is to stop paving everything mm-hmm. as we pave stuff it goes into the storm drains mm-hmm. right it doesn't go back into the ground and recharge the water tables and a really interesting thing they actually really need to remap our floodplains. Mm-hmm. And our flood um, zones here, even in the Bay Area, really everywhere, because one, with climate change, we may or may not be getting as much water over a year. But when the storms come, they tend to be more dramatic and drop more water at once. All that water is dumping into people's driveways, people's roofs. They go into the gutters. They go then on the gutters on the street and then into the storm drains. The storm drains put them into the channels, right, that are supposed to take them and dump them in, say, the Guadalupe River out into the bay. But the channels can't handle the quantities of water that are coming, one, because the storms are more intense, but two, there's so much more paved surface than when they were designed that the quantities of water and we're getting flooding. Cody Creek, what was it, five years ago, four years ago, it flooded huge sections of San Jose. So yes, these are all yeah. huh. <laughs> things that are happening. And of course, trying to figure out, um, oh, the other thing that's amazing, you know, we just dump gray water. So gray water is... I shouldn't say that, you know, so black water is the water that's coming out of your toilet. Gray water is the water coming out of your shower, sinks, mm-hmm. dishwashers. Here at Santa Clara, we use gray water to, to water the the landscaping, which is great. So the water goes, all the water goes to the wastewater treatment facility, and then we pay to pump back water that's not drinkable to water. So it's non-potable. Um, 
typically they just take that water and they discharge it into rivers and the ocean and whatever. We have the ability at the Santa Clara wastewater treatment facility, they can filter that all the way to clean drinking water. Hmm. And they have a, a facility in San Diego that can do that. But right now what's stopping taking the water that we just used and recycling it and putting it right back into our pipes to go back into our homes is government hmm. policy. And then of course, getting the voters not to have the ew yeah. factor, right? But when you think about water and reservoirs filled with fish poop and bird poop and everything else, like yeah. it always is. <laughs> and we're cleaning it really well. But the so a lot of the biggest challenge is educating the general public. Hmm. Yeah. 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 And to kind of change topics a little bit, you also work at Santa Clara with uh, Engineers Without Borders. So do you want to maybe say a few words about that group and your involvement? Oh, my gosh. Uh, they're the most amazing students. They inspire me and humble me darn near every day. Um, I mentor them. So I give them advice. Uh, they run themselves and they're phenomenal. We are entering our fifth year of working in Rwanda. Prior to that, we've been working in Honduras, but the political situation there got so dire that the school said you can't work there anymore it wasn't safe and it's it's still not safe it was not a bad decision on the university's part um we're currently working ironically on a water project we'd started with smaller mechanical type machine devices for this community to help them with a a tile cooperative where they make roof tiles and to, to transport clay to make the tiles, but really now they it's getting them some clean water. And so we travel, but the students, it's such a great opportunity for students because they, they're working with a client, they're designing the system, they're learning, everything has to meet national standards, not Rwandan, but US national mm-hmm. standards. And so it gets reviewed by EWB nationals. Um, there's a lot of paperwork, which is a hard but good lesson <laughs> for the students. And they're just, it's just a really amazing thing to be part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, our community in Rwanda is, it's such a joy to get to go there and to work with them and to learn from them. Mm-hmm. There's such wisdom. Um, they don't necessarily have the technical knowledge, mm-hmm. but they have a lot more life wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's humbling to do that. So yeah, that's a joy. And, and it's such a, any engineering student can get involved. There's opportunities mm-hmm. and non-engineering. We've had business students, physics students, education students, public mm-hmm. health students. Mm-hmm. So. so have you traveled there with the team? Oh, every year? Use? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Honduras and Rwanda. Okay. Yeah. And then you're installing like water pumps in the for this or? For this particular project, so we've been working, so with EWB, you, you try to develop a relationship with one group. And so you spend time with them so that you can really understand their needs. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be... That, that there's that development model of you kind of go in, you give and you leave and it doesn't work and it's been shown again and again. So ours is a very slow process. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, Rwanda is known as the land of a thousand hills for a reason and not a single one of those hills is mild. They're all very steep. And so water is at the bottom. They're at the top um, of the hill. Same as why we had to create a clay transport system mm-hmm. for the clay tiles is clay deposits at the bottom. The roads are at the top (laughs) of this very steep hill and long hill. Um, So they've actually, they have a lot of groundwater. 
they're able to dig a hole and get natural um, groundwater to come up, which is great. But because the holes in the bottom of the valley where they're grazing animals, any runoff is bringing E. coli or other bacteria into the water hole. It's also very, very turbid, which means it's cloudy because their soil is clay, so very fine particles. And so the water looks muddy and not clear. So they working there's a nonprofit um now called Faith in Action mm-hmm. is the US hub Pico Rwanda mm-hmm. is who's on the ground there mm-hmm. so we've been working with Pico for five, six years now. And Pico is helping them get the water just pumped up to the top of the hill. Um, Our job is to then take that water and turn it into clean drinking water. So the students are currently researching um, either a sand filter or there's something called a wound string filter Mm -hmm. as a first path, and then hopefully incorporating a UV type filtration on it with a small solar panel. Um, it's great. You can lay solar panels flat in Rwanda because they're on the equator. So <laughs> you get a lot more sun out of them. Um, and the UV systems don't take a lot of power, but can really clean the water. And that would be amazing because their spring water is great, but they still need to boil it. Uh, nobody in this area is cooking on a gas stove. They're all still three stones on the ground with wood in between. Hmm. So it's very environmentally impactful. The smoke is hard on the women. So anything we can do to cut down their time, um, having to cook. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. And you told me before the conversation that you started rock climbing in 1990, was it? 91. 91. Summer of 91 with my now husband. Mm -hmm. So what, what role has that kind of played in your, in your life or, or other outdoor activities? I think, I think the just willingness, I don't, I don't want to say take risk because I feel like I am not a risk taker. Others might disagree, but I feel like make very calculated (laughs) risks, but it's a sense of adventure. Um, the climbing led me to being more of an outdoors person, which led to me spending six months traveling through South America, um, between I, before I, right after I got my professional license and before I started teaching, I just left the country, um, to discover, the world. And I think it really built my empathy around that. Um, outdoor sports are great engineering, any student. I mean, anxiety is such a big thing now and you got to go out, you got to do something that brings you peace and fills your soul. So rock climbing, my husband and I have been doing it together now. Oh my God, many, many years, eight, 28 years. Um, and then I have a large contingent of women that I trail run with and we'll Mm -hmm. go on I have an 18 miler scheduled this weekend. So many hours in the foothills with nature and it's fabulous. Um, And then of course, I know Rachel mentioned to you the dirt bike riding. Um, That's really my husband's sport, but it's something we do together and have a lot of fun. And there's definitely times where we'll ride somewhere and there'll be a really hard track off to the side. Mm -hmm. Like I just wait Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he goes and rides Mm -hmm. the double plus black diamond stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, sit and enjoy nature. Um, but all of these things, I think they're challenging, right? They, all of the things that I do, I think they, they cause you to face fears. They cause you to face uncertainties. You know, when you're eight miles out on a trail run and you got to get back and there's a big hill in front of you and you're tired and you can either just sort of give up or say, yeah, this is going to hurt a little bit, but I can get past it. And when I go into say Rwanda and I see how these people live and I talk all the time about how soft we are as Americans. I mean, we work 
eight hour days. Okay. Most of us work a little more than that, but these people work sun up to sundown. They're sustenance farmers. They're walking distances just to get water. They're walking distances just to get firewood. The, the adults are malnourished so that their children can hopefully have three meals a day. Um, their lives are incredibly physical and, um, it humbles me so much. So I feel like having these challenges in life remind me that life isn't always easy and that I can build some empathy around these other people and that I am so privileged that I get to go and create a challenge for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I do think it, it helps because one, I can also keep up with them when we're there. A lot of the students struggle with keeping up with the run that you like going up and down the hills mm-hmm. <laughs> too much time at desks and not mm-hmm. enough time taking breaks to fill their souls and not just have it be about their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, th- there's a couple questions I like to ask at okay. the end of every conversation. So the first is what piece of advice would you give to an incoming first year student at Santa Clara? <sighs> Gosh. Um, I think a big thing is to find your community Um, Students do better when they have a cohort that supports them. And so, especially as a first-year student, you you are not as busy with your classes. So it's a time to sort of branch out and discover who you are outside of the influences of high school and, you know, everything you knew growing up. But at the same time, (laughs) learning that balance and getting some accountability buddies. That's a huge thing. Have some accountability buddies where you're going to go study X number of hours a day so that you don't get behind because college is different than high school. And it's a big eye opener for everyone. And having that community might help you realize too, you're not the only one that got a C in chemistry mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are there any favorite places in the world that you've traveled to? Oh my gosh. I've traveled to Antarctica, wow. <laughs> the Antarctic huh. Peninsula when the little penguin nibbled on my leg. That was heaven wow. for me. So, um, <laughs> South Georgia Island, Antarctic Peninsula was amazing. Um, my favorite Vacation was probably I got to swim with humpback whales off the Dominican Republic. Um, With my husband, it was traveling with him. It was Italy. We spent a week climbing in the Italian Alps and the Dolomites. And everything about that was the people, the food, the climbing. Phenomenal. Hmm. So I don't have one favorite. I like to travel. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Was Antarctica for like personal growth? Okay. I dreamed of it and dreamed of it and, um, decided to save pennies. A friend of mine, her husband's family runs a very well organized and uh, a travel service that Mm -hmm. gives the traveler a lot of autonomy and freedom, but in places where you can't go without a guide. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I, I was able to go with that group and actually my mom went along. My husband did not because he got seasick on the water taxis in Venice. So (laughs) he could not be on a ship for 25 days. Um, yeah, it was amazing. The wildlife is phenomenal. Yeah. 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 If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Oh my gosh, please start being kind to one another. Um, sitting down and talking to people because we have more in common than we have different. When you travel outside the U.S., 
and you meet someone else from the U.S., you feel an initial immediate kinship to them. But yet, if I were to meet that same person in the U.S., I wouldn't necessarily feel any kinship to them. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Oh, my gosh. Out on the trails early in the morning, perhaps. That, well, there's so many. Gosh. Okay. We'll say out on the trails early in the morning with a dog and my mm. friends, preferably up in the Sierras, mm. run um in fact, you get dropped off before the climbing area. So you get in like a five or six mile run. The vehicles that where we're going to climb, you grab your pack, wow. you hike up to everybody's climbing, you spend the rest of the day climbing, then you come back and you chill with friends at somebody's house up in the mountains over a barbecue. Oh, that's a good day. Wow. There has to be like three or four dogs also okay. there because it's not being outdoors without dogs. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing yeah. this conversation. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.